for people to acknowledge the complexity of American identity. That makes things more complex, but in the long run, that creates safer spaces, and that also brings innovation, because it's acknowledging each person's cultural and intellectual tradition. And we are, or at least working on, coming together and making the spaces for that knowledge to grow. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. What can be learned from indigenous language and culture? Amerigo Mendoza Mori explores the impact of making space for marginalized people and traditions. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to speak with Dr. Americo Mendoza Mori today. He recently gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on language revitalization, cultural reclamation, and global indigeneity, which you can watch on our website. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Americo. Happy to be with you all. Well, as we get started, would you please briefly introduce yourself to our listeners and share with us your background and your path with languages? Sure. I'm a scholar that works on languages and literatures of the Americas. Specifically, I do research on Quechua and Spanish. And for this talk that I facilitated at Cornell, I focused on the part of the work that I do on analyzing how different communities, specifically indigenous communities, see in the process of reclaiming, revitalizing their language, Mm -hmm. an opportunity to um, come together, find empowerment, and celebrate their culture in a time when there are still challenges of discrimination Mm -hmm. or, or legacies of coloniality. Yeah. I am from Peru. I grew up speaking Spanish Mm -hmm. at home. At the same time, something I learned along the way when I did my undergrad studies in literature uh, is to notice that Peruvian Spanish has a lot of words in Quechua. Mm. And we use it on an everyday base. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I traveled to other countries, specifically when I moved to the United States and I met other people with Latin American backgrounds that I was like, hey, wait a second. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and sometimes we don't realize that. We, we might even assume that that's not kind of like standard Spanish or it's just like a funny word that we throw here and there. And when, it, when in reality, it's like, wow, I mean, Spanish is, it has a lot of uh, uh, words that come from indigenous languages, not only Quechua spoken in South America, but Nahuatl or Taino. Yeah, interesting. And actually, this this jogs my memory. Y- you just mentioning that you weren't necessarily aware that some words in Spanish actually have roots in Quechua. I didn't know um, during your talk you mentioned words like alpaca and quinoa that those are rooted in in the Quechua language as well. Um, you also mentioned that there are more speakers of Quechua um, in the United States than, um, well, maybe in the world even, than speakers of Swedish. And of course, a lot of those speakers aren't necessarily reported and counted. Um, but 
Can you talk a little bit more about the presence of indigenous languages in everyday life and also this legacy of misrepresentation of indigenous languages, especially in North America? Sure. It's funny that you mentioned quinoa because now it's a, such a popular... Oh, yeah, food. right? Yeah. They're, they have even coined the term superfood. Right? Oh, yeah, right. and the ancient grains. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but the thing is sometimes is that um, how much do we know about the people that produce quinoa? Yeah, and, oh, nothing. And I yeah. personally, like, well, like, when I grew up in Peru, eating quinoa was not cool. Uh -huh. People didn't know about that. It was even considered, oh, that's a grain from the Andes. Uh, uh, therefore, oh, well, yeah. uh, we, we had, like, especially in the 80s and 90s, economic hardship in, mm -hmm. in the country. And quinoa and potatoes, they were great sources for people to survive. Mm -hmm. And uh, and now it's funny that, of course, now it's recognized as mm -hmm. such. But I, w whenever people bring that term of, like, superfood, uh, I, I, I want to also... Uh, bring attention of like to think of the people that work the quinoa what the knowledge that requires to grow the quinoa for example mm. you you can't grow quinoa at sea level you need to do it at least mm. at 10,000 feet of altitude mm. I didn't know so that so there's knowledge behind that and i think that's something that as language scholars we are also always trying to advocate that when we were learning a language We are also learning about culture, people, mm -hmm. knowledges, yeah. and 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 engaging with the other part of your question of like the legacies of discrimination. Yeah. By doing that, specifically with indigenous languages, we're hoping to close the gap of this legacy of discrimination by acknowledging that there are knowledge systems within indigenous societies. Mm -hmm. So you did discuss indigenous knowledge systems in your talk quite a bit um, and the importance of awareness of indigenous knowledge systems that allow us not just to learn more about certain topics or disciplines, but to learn in a different way than we're accustomed to. Uh, could you please talk a bit more about that? Thank you. So first, um, uh, as I mentioned uh, during the talk, It's not just about knowing more of a certain thing, but finding different ways. Mm -hmm. And one example is that among different indigenous societies, community is a very important aspect on how things get done. Yeah. So the intellectual production is seen as a collective process. Even uh, intellectual property huh. is, or it could be, a collective issue. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the past few years, Guatemala has been working with Maya and indigenous communities mm -hmm. to pass legislation that recognizes collective intellectual property. Oh, wow. Because what happens huh. is that, and it unfortunately has happened, is like designers in Paris or New York, they travel to Latin America and they find nice designs and then they copy them and then they register as themselves. Mm -hmm. Or even, even if there's a case of them well, looking to for some acknowledgement to the communities, mm -hmm. they they can't point out to one person because it's a collective work. Uh, for some communities, a particular design is a way 
let's say, to put a, a U.S. analogy, it's like when I walk by the street and I see people with T-shirts like from Cornell, like we know that people belong to a particular mm -hmm. school or sure. town mm -hmm. or, or sports team. Yeah. So for many communities, it could be the design that they mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. And how, therefore, I mean, can we acknowledge that and, and negotiate yeah. uh, for these particular processes? Yeah. Interesting. It also stood out to me that you emphasize that indigenous issues are global issues, yeah. too. You outlined a lot of opportunities for effecting change, you know, for example, increasing presence um, and increasing awareness of indigenous language and cultures. What can we, especially as individuals who don't speak an indigenous language, who are not part of an indigenous culture, what can we do to create space and recognition? Thank you. One little aspect that I was able to share during the talk is that just by identifying words mm -hmm. that come from different languages, it could be, or, or even from places here in upstate New York, there are different um, landscapes, natural spaces sure. that can help it uh, help us remember mm -hmm. the history, the connection with certain communities. In the case of Quechua, we can think of animals, food. We mentioned mm -hmm. quinoa or alpaca. And, and just being aware of that the same way as we are aware of other uh, global languages. Sure. And speaking of global issues, uh, when we uh, explore the themes of climate change or environmental studies, mm -hmm. uh, indigenous people have um, been working so hard and still working and, and raising awareness about these issues and and we can learn a lot from different practices that they that they do in the case of Quechua we can think of of even philosophical terms like Pachamama which is a Quechua word for Mother Earth mm -hmm. which poses a, a question on how do we what kind of relationship would, do we have with our planet so The more we, let's say, become curious and try to make space, because uh, I understand that not everybody might be doing research on languages, but sure. maybe in, on healthcare, maybe yeah. on food mm -hmm, security, mm -hmm. yep. on philosophy, uh, even on diversity. When yeah. we think of uh, holidays, for example, now many more cities and states in the U.S. are acknowledging Uh, indigenous People's Days in October, mm -hmm. which is yeah. an opportunity to even just acknowledge who, which communities are here. What can we learn about our own history? Um, so, so in, in that lens, uh, it can be an open invitation for every everyone on the, on the work they do to incorporate and learn from indigenous societies. Mm -hmm. Uh, this also ties in with the importance of moving beyond a focus on language to identity-oriented experiences. That's a broad topic, but can you unpack some more of the challenges of living in a racialized society? Universities are platforms of education. We we know that they they create a canon of the recognition of different traditions of knowledge and the incorporation of more languages, more cultures. Also, uh, that also sends a message mm -hmm. to different communities that things that were considered worthless or that were completely overlooked 
now are important to do research about, but also be celebrated. And and that and many students, especially from underrepresented backgrounds, first gen students, kids of immigrants, um, they when they come to higher education, sometimes they they enter in the dilemma of should I choose between professional advancement or should mm. I choose yeah. or, or or my identity or yeah. celebrating mm-hmm. my culture. When, why, in the first place, what that should be a, a contradiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and also, if we expand that even, like, let's say, at society, what kind of society, what kind of, like, U.S. society do we want to work on? Like, do we want to celebrate a multicultural, also multilingual society? Mm-hmm. Hopefully, that's that's the point. And, and, and if we think even, like, Spanish, that is already a... A widely spoken language in the U.S., sometimes the approach could be that, oh, let's say when services are offered, like in healthcare or immigration, more as something that the U.S. has to deal with rather than embracing mm, it as, mm-hmm. no, actually, this is who we are. Yeah. And 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 therefore, this is the, the future, the multilingual future that we want to build in. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. And I, I think you mentioned the role of institutions of higher education and all of this. I think we all certainly need to continue to do more to create spaces and, and raise awareness of all communities, including indigenous communities. Um, you mentioned some of the advocacy groups um, that you are involved in related to to Quechua and maybe other indigenous languages and cultures too. Can you tell us a little bit more about these groups and where we can find more information on them? Yes, thank you. Um, one, um, before sharing that, uh, you mentioned how by raising awareness we are also coming together. Mm-hmm. And therefore, in my particular case, uh, I have been uh, doing research on Quechua, but we also find a lot of solidarity and collaboration with Mm. other projects Mm -hmm. that within their own context also empower and celebrate cultures. Um, During during the talk among the attendees, um, we were talking of, for example, Catalan language activists Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or the the history of uh, Jewish immigrants who spoke Yiddish Mm -hmm. and now that universities are offering Yiddish language programs mm-hmm. as a way to, of course, celebrate the heritage, but also for people to acknowledge the complexity of American identity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, it requires, and, and, and maybe this is a more logistical comment, but that makes things more complex. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, that creates safer spaces, mm-hmm. and that also brings innovation. Mm-hmm. Because it's acknowledging each person's uh, cultural and intellectual tradition. And we are, let's say, and ideally, or at least working on, coming together and making the spaces for that knowledge to grow. Mm-hmm. Mm. In regards to the institutions and initiatives that I've been involved with, uh, one of them is the Quechua Alliance, which is a community organization that we started uh, in 2015 that uh, started as a way to bring together um, Quechua students and educators and elders hmm, yeah. in the community. 
Because, again, the process of many immigrants is that they come to the United States, they ha feel the pressure of assimilating to the context, and, and maybe they do have some celebrations, but mostly out of nostalgia. Mm. But they don't necessarily, because of the challenges, because, I mean, there are many factors, discrimination, time, having mm. two or three jobs. Of course. Right. Um, but, but they don't necessarily see or, or, or find the space to pass on the culture to the new generations. But certainly yeah. there's people who do want to. Yeah, but mm -hmm. certainly that's that's an issue, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes like, mm -hmm. oh, I saw my grandma speaking a language or cooking a particular dish or mm -hmm. celebrating a particular um, uh, a party. Um, so this space hope to uh, be an intergenerational space. Also, speaking of... Uh, or bringing back the, the concept of learning in a different way by bringing elders who don't necessarily have uh, advanced degrees mm -hmm. or went to college, mm -hmm. but they are the knowledge keepers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Without they, a doubt. They are the native speakers. They have the relationship. In Quechua, for example, in Quechua culture, the relationship with the land is so important. Yes. So yeah. many yeah. of them firsthand can say they, they were grazing alpacas, they were mm -hmm. working the land, they... They can in, in the in the U.S. or in the average, let's say, um, U.S. supermarket, we only have like maybe two, three, four types of potatoes. Mm -hmm. In the Andes, we have like four thousand yeah. types of potatoes. Yeah. So, the Quechua Alliance has been celebrating that through yeah. uh, annual gatherings. During the pandemic, we started with virtual gatherings, huh. workshops, to and and always try to keep it in an intergenerational intergenerational setting. Yeah. Uh, also at Harvard. Uh, I work at the at the program on ethnicity migration rights, and then there we have started uh, the Quechua Initiative on Global Indigeneity, hmm. which tries to explicitly connect indigenous languages, indigenous cultures with global issues. And something that we uh, have started doing this year was to uh, travel to the United Nations with uh, students. Um, from Harvard to attend the UN Forum on Indigenous Issues. Mm, wow. And it's a huge gathering that where many indigenous diplomats and nonprofit organizations and governments and yeah. also scholars come together in New York City at the UN headquarters to discuss global and relevant issues mm -hmm. in connection to indigenous communities. Mm. And, and indigenous communities are the protagonists of that dialogue. Um, Many students, uh, when I ask them, hey, have you ever met an indigenous diplomat? They might be open to the idea. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, great yeah. that they exist, but have you actually met yeah. one? Mm -hmm. And of course, I mean, for many of them, it's like, no, I, yeah. okay, so let's go. And it's, awesome. a, it's an exciting yeah. opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you mentioned collaboration, and one thing you also um, said during your talk was that um, we need to move away from researching indigenous cultures and languages as objects or just like things yes. of the past. Um, and that helps us to understand better, really, their complexity and their contributions that they make, you know, not only within the indigenous area, but within a global focus. So I, I really, yeah, I, I appreciate that you are raising awareness about all of this and the important work that you do in these regards. Thank you. And and by thinking of indigenity as, as, a, as not just a thing of the past, that also prompt us to 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 look for indigenous voices mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the expertise and something that uh, 
uh, Cornell has been doing through the language resource center is to host Quechua Fulbrighters, mm -hmm. which brings so much richness to oh, the community. Yeah. And yeah. I had the opportunity to to meet with one of yeah. them during my visit at Cornell. And of course, it's a transformative opportunity mm -hmm. uh, for the person that comes, but also for oh, the for community. Us? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. So, so those, let's say, at, at, this, at the same time as we are talking about these huge ideas, also thinking of these logistics mm -hmm. that help transform the spaces mm -hmm. where we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, I know for me, just to, to build on the conversation a little bit, um, something I really appreciate about the work that you're doing is I know growing up in the United States, Uh, I've perceived a certain maybe unspoken by some attitude that if this is the way most people do a certain thing, the way we've always done a certain thing, mm -hmm. that must be the best way. And I even when you when you brought up, uh, you know, copyright law, intellectual property earlier. And for me as a, a creative person who's had to hmm. investigate yeah. how that works, um, It's so encouraging for me to see not only is the way things are generally done not necessarily the only way to do it, there are people and communities who have thought about and applied these ideas in very different ways yeah. for a very long time, and maybe that's a better fit for more people than what we've all mm -hmm. uh, been taught to just except at least mm -hmm. again that's my experience growing up in the u.s so i really appreciate that about the work you're doing uh and i would also love to know where our listeners could find out more about you and your work you can my name is americo mendoza mori and you can look me up uh, on the internet i'm on social media and different social medias usually my my handle is americo with a q so a m e R-I-Q-O, <laughs> and uh, I'm happy to engage uh, with the potential audience and, and to learn about the different initiatives when people reach out. Uh, let's say sometimes when we think of immigrant communities in the United States, we tend to think mostly in big urban clusters. Mm -hmm. But there are, for example, important, uh, let's say, the biggest Quechua, Quechua communities are in New York City, in New Jersey, in Miami, South Florida, but there are also important communities in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. in Utah, in Colorado. A, a fun story, like there in the early, fun, not so fun, but <laughs> um, in the early 20th century, the U.S. had a huge interest in bringing shepherds to <laughs> the uh to the middle United States. Yeah. And they started by bringing people from Galicia in Spain. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, the conditions were, uh, to be mild, not the best. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, uh, and, and of course, at the end of the day, Galicia is part of Europe. So once this started uh, being not is the conditions, they started bringing people from Peru, mm. Quechua speakers, 
uh, peasants, uh, and now their descendants are living in Colorado and Utah. Mm. And those stories are, uh, I, I think, they are need to be told. I have a colleague, Alison Krochel, at the University of Denver, who has reading about that and ha- and has been working with some communities. But that's still, again, that that complicates our history also mm. in the United States because it it. it brings light to complicated issues on how, let's say, we can even think of of conditions, labor uh, uh, rights. But but at the same time, it's an opportunity to acknowledge the uh, how in this particular case some expertise from Quechua communities were unique and important mm-hmm. even for the construction of, of, of U.S. society. Yeah, yeah wonderful. And we'll make sure to include links to your website and um, your social media handle in our show notes as well. Um, Americo, this is this is amazing and very important work that you do. Thank you for all the contributions you are making and you will continue to make. Before we let you go, though, we'd like to ask you to share a word in a language that you speak, you love, you learn, you may want to learn in the future. That does not exist in English, but you wish it did. Ooh. So I was, as I mentioned at the beginning of of this conversation, I am from Peru. I was recently there. And one of my favorite experiences is going to the market. Mm -hmm. Everything is fresh. You you can see everything. And and I love uh, going there to also get... uh, juices or smoothies and when you ask for like there, there there's like an aisle of people who are like offering you different kinds of fruits tropical fruits and um okay and you see it and you ask for your smoothie mm-hmm. and you finish it you are expected to ask for a yapa okay and yapa is like an extra Ah. <laughs> but it's so common, like huh. if you are asking for, it could be a beverage, in this case a smoothie, or if you buy food, mostly street food. Uh-huh. But the word is yapa, like um, Y-A-P-A, okay. mm-hmm. yapa. And and people say it both in Quechua and Spanish. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And and I know that it's not only in Peru, in Bolivia as well. So it's a because it's a Quechua word. Quechua is like spoken across the Andes. Mm-hmm. And and I really like the both the word the the but also the practice mm-hmm. because basically yeah. you are developing a relationship with yeah. that vendor, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. So it's like you go there, they know you. Oh, please get me my yapa. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, Amerigo. Thank you so much. Tupananchis Kama. See you soon in Quechua. Oh, nice. Next week, we are excited to introduce a new LRC team member. Hilary Yarger is the new engagement and outreach coordinator here. Tune in to hear more about Hilary and the plans we have for supporting language students and language learning. Until then... Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu. Or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. 
As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.